Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can the best way possible while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What is making me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying, and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title, you get a title, you get a title. Either pay me, or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli, and I will be your host. Guy Weigert, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Let's uh, start with the basics. Who are you? What do you do? And why do you do it? So I uh, essentially run the sales solution business unit. So I'm uh, essentially a general manager managing one of four business units in SimilarWeb. My first interaction with SimilarWeb, I think it was 2010. Was the company already in existence or am I making this up? 2011 maybe? Yeah, it probably was already existing. Yeah. I had a blog called Balls, as in testicles uh, in, yeah. in uh, Hebrew. And um, I wanted to pitch the blog uh, for, a, for a few potential sponsors. And I used data from SimilarWeb, the free part of it, uh, to say, hey, here's, here's how much traffic my website is seeing. It's before I knew how to use Google Analytics. And it landed me my first uh, sponsorship deal. Um, there you go. So uh, I think I'm, a, I'm indebted to the company for about 15,000 pounds. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, it was, uh, it was super, super helpful to uh, make meaning out of what I was doing digitally. And I know you've scaled that, that product tremendously since. How much money did the company raise so far? Slightly more than 120 million over, I think, four or five uh, funding rounds. Yeah. What's the approach to growth in the business? Um, we're actually growing quite fast. So the company, from a journey perspective, the company started um, monetizing its product in 2013. Right. So we, we operated in a, not a stealth mode, but we operated a non-profit for, for the first few years. We haven't had the funding round, I think, for the last two years now, or a bit more than that. Um, but that's just because we're managing to to grow quite fast uh, with, with the funds that we have. So we're, we're doing well from uh, the way that we, uh, well, we grow responsibly, let's say, let's say, um, and still quite fast with our digits. So, um, you say grow responsibly uh, as opposed to what? As opposed to uh, spending uh, $10 million per year on PPC and marketing spend that is probably not going to get you that return. I'm uh, going to get you some additional audience and additional uh, accounts, but not as much as you need to actually have a sustainable business. 
the dependency on uh, on bot traffic and bot leads creates a kind of I think sometimes prevents companies from actually reaching product market fit because you force your leads into some sort of a funnel and you kind of impose the sell on them rather than having a great product that uh, that goes organically but it's also a pretty brave choice in today's economy where growth capital is a strategy how many people were there when you joined when I joined we were about uh, 400 people okay so it's it's no longer a a startup that doesn't know what it's doing like there's processes there's roles there are hierarchies I would say that uh, it's a good question I think that Yes, definitely not it's not like a 15 employee startup 100%. Uh, similar web is an environment I guess when one of the reasons why we're able to grow so fast without like a huge amount of capital is because we are constantly evolving. Um, so while it's it was a 400 employee company, it was still changing roles and responsibilities quite often, changing teams um, to try to adapt to the market as quick as, quickly as possible. constantly evolving sounds to me like something that on a job description would say fast-paced dynamic environment um, can you translate it for for us as in what does it actually mean on the day-to-day it would mean that first you might come in um, every week and there will be different priorities right so you might not be able to plan four months in advance I want to work on project ABC so that kind of like the day-to-day I guess or the immediate means and Um, it will mean that timelines are uh, normally reduced by uh, 95% of what you expect that you have, which means that if someone is asking you for a quick analysis, it's not going to be, oh, give me three, four weeks to do that. It will probably be by Tuesday or by Monday or sorry, by uh, Wednesday. So it has a lot of implication on the way that you just work and operate as an individual contributor. I think that... On the flip side, it has a lot of excitement. So there are a lot of just new things. You learn a lot. Um, there are new elements that are coming into the business every day. You might be starting the week thinking about your uh, inbound marketing activities for this week and then end up with uh, working with SDRs on outbound. SDRs, sales development representatives. So that's what a fast-moving uh, company means. Short timelines, shifting priorities. Who thrives in those type of environments and who do you see that struggles? It's a good question. I think that it's probably, uh, I don't want to overgeneralize it because I'd say that I personally also struggled in this environment five years ago and evolved into thriving in this environment. Mm. So I think that the first thing I could say is that people who thrive in this environment are people that are flexible, that adapt quickly, regardless of what, Your baseline, if you're allowing yourself to adapt quickly, you'll probably be in a, uh, in a good shape. Um, people that enjoy different like the variety of topics that enjoy the unpredictable, right? that enjoy change, that are creative the, in, in, in a way that allow themselves to explore new avenues within the company, speak to new people constantly evolving within the company. those people I think would thrive um, thrive well. If I'm debating, I'm hearing all these talk about startups and dynamic environments and fast moving and it sounds super exciting. How can I ask myself these questions? Am I compatible? Uh, will I have fun? Will I thrive in that environment? Can I even ask those questions beforehand or should I just give it a go? I'd say give it a go is always a good, uh, especially if we're talking about, if you're early on in your career, you're kind of like um, in your first, let's say, five to ten years of your uh, professional experience, give it a go. And I, I don't think there, there's nothing bad that could come out of it. Worst case, you're going to uh, spend a few, a couple of years and realize that it's just not for you. And that was a great learning experience for you. So I think that early in the career, I, I just advise going for that. I think that there are some cues to do for that, for example. Um, So if you are doing a, if you're in an interview process with a startup you know, and you're kind of in a presentation stage and you will probably have little context on the presentation you'll need to do have a very fast turnaround of 48 hours or so 
And so that's already an indication. Are you able to do that? Are you in kind of like just getting, just preparing to an interview from you know one day to the, the next? So I think that's already an indication of how the work would be in the startup. And other than that, just talk to people in the in similar uh, situations. So a good hiring process for a startup in the junior roles will also include some of what the work itself will entail. So yeah. even though you do it asynchronously, meaning you get a test, but you have a certain amount of time to complete it, it simulates um, what the working environment would look like. Moving from a company like Zim, 5,000 people, to a company with 800 people, what changes in how you work? Um, I'd say that the first change is that you have less processes. So there is just more uncertainties. You're coming into a place that things are not as established. You probably need to create more things from scratch. Uh, in that experience, for example, I built a team, a function from scratch. We built the sales operations. It was me and another four guys worldwide building in each region the sales operations function. So you're coming in and there is just nothing there. You just need to figure it out. And that's at 800 people. Yeah. So even 800 people, what sounds like an established business, still has some black holes in it, things that don't exist. It's not just process improvement. It's also process creation. For sure. I think that uh, that's very common, less so these days, but six, seven years ago. Um, I'd say that sales ops was just a new function. Generally speaking, like if you look 20 years back, sales ops just didn't exist as a function. And so a lot of companies have adopted this function quite late in their cycle. Um, it's very common to have the, the first person, the first sales ops person at about 100 employees. For Credio, they were late adopter. We, they, they started that with 600, 700 employees, and I was just hired briefly after that. Let's double click on the sales operations role because um, though in the startup scene, it's already a well-known term, well-defined. In the general population, I don't know if it's uh, if it's quite there yet. So what is the sales operation function? Good question. I think that first we need to remember that it's still actually very different from company to company. Uh, I'd say that the fundamentals of sales operation, though, is essentially the, or a sales operation team would be measured on improving the sales performance of the company. That normally involves several res- uh, responsibilities. The most common that probably all companies share is uh, managing sales process through the CRM. So if, whether you're having uh, Salesforce as your CRM or Microsoft Dynamics or any other CRM platform, and CRM is customer relationship management platform, you um, essentially, you would admin that, uh, that platform and make sure that salespeople record all the information in that and are moving opportunities and pipeline through that. From that responsibility, some companies take it into compensation plan for salespeople and building a compliance structure that allows them to to put the company forward, um, given that those incentives. Uh, and that actually has a lot of impact on the sales, the sales team, how you structure your compensation plan. There is an element of sales enablement that some sales operations teams are doing, so sales training and development of salespeople. And there is an element normally of forecasting and budgeting and being responsible for the business operations. So we picked up on uh, two challenges. One is how you navigate a a more uh, nimble workplace with fewer processes. And then doing the legacy work of coming in, it's not, you you didn't get to build that company. You join in the middle and you have to both improve what's going to happen in the future and also optimize what is already happening. And then let's talk about the cultural differences. Cultural differences, I think, is huge. About 40% of of the London taxing comprises of expats, people who came in to do work. So that's a huge percentage, but it's still not the majority. And even if it was the majority, that majority is comprised of people of different nationalities, different cultures, different ethnicities. Let's start with the individual level. So when you first moved to the UK after working in, in Israel or from Israel, what were the main challenges you faced, culturally speaking? Uh, I'd say that in the first job, I almost got uh, myself fired after six months, right? That's just probably the biggest or the biggest outcome of that challenge. For me, moving in from Israel, which is a very direct environment, I'd say very intense, sometimes tends to be aggressive environment because of, uh, of the level of directness. I came and just expected a lot of... Um, 
a lot of my colleagues, the people I uh, report to or work with, senior stakeholders in the sales organization to be you know, just acting similarly. And no matter how much theoretical preparation I had during my MBA and reading on the cultural differences, it's just, I guess, when you face it on your day-to-day, it's different. Your, your kind of nature is, uh, is to just maintain the same, uh, the same behavior from the past. How did you almost get fired? What happened there? I had uh, two managing directors um, that I needed to support as part of, of the sales ops organization. Uh, both of them were running business unit, different business units. Um, and uh, the person uh, that uh, I worked with um, the most, um, I guess we just didn't see eye to eye a lot of uh, professional elements. He didn't really embrace the sales ops function. I didn't really make his life easy uh, embracing it as well. In what way? I came in and had like a lot of recommendations. A lot of, uh, I came in from this subject expert matter uh, place and uh, and basically recommending some changes, how we need to operate going forward. I guess he saw it as a, a he saw it as someone coming from the outside, not from his team. All of a sudden, making recommendations and changing things that probably didn't need as many changes. So I guess it was a combination of me being overly aggressive in what I, I proposed. Uh, that could be like changes to conversation plan. We ran uh, some sort of an incentive program as well, like an additional competition plan at the time and some sales processes changes. He saw it as just a threat, I think. Um, a threat or not, I would, a threat is probably not the right word. He saw it as um, as a change. It probably wasn't as much needed because business was going well, which, which they were. So business was going well, and all of a sudden comes this guy um, speaking with a funny accent, yeah. starting to make all these recommendations. Now, you could be right about these recommendations. You know, you were hired in a professional capacity, but sometimes it's not about, uh, about what we say. It's about how we say it. And when you make a recommendation, that's true, <clears throat> not just for, for guides, it's true for everyone. It means someone is doing something wrong or something can be done better. So it's very easy to interpret that as a, as a criticism or passing judgment on, on, yeah. on a person's role. If you come in and you have to uh, pitch changes to uh, someone who's more senior than you and everything is going well, the motivation to change, sometimes it's not there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's, it, was, it wasn't there. I mean, I uh, look in hindsight, there are so many things that I could have done better. But I think it's, it's a lot of like you were asking about cultural changes. Uh, I mean, things that I still remember, we had a very intense meeting uh, one time and at the end of it, uh, he was proposing something. I said, you know what? I just don't agree. And like from a cultural perspective, he, I remember his look and he looked at me as if like, how dare you saying that you don't agree with me? Which for me, was just like, you know... Um, casual statement this is how we speak right yeah. israelis would often start sentences by no but yeah you know we'll start with the no and say but and then we'll give our version of it so going back into that room into that situation what would you do differently to the israeli super direct approach first i would uh in that in that moment i would probably use a better phrasing so i would probably soften the the statement saying something along the lines if I understand incorrectly, this is what you're saying. Why don't we explore several options and see which one is the best, as an example? Which is, I guess, a, a subtle way to say there are other alternatives. So I would probably use a different uh, wording, but I would say that on in, in, in a bigger picture, if I was there seven years ago, I would focus a lot more on building the relationship, focus a lot more on serving his needs rather than my needs. Uh, at the time. That's huge. And it comes across from as a key learning for so many people uh, that has been on the show because you go in, you hire the professional capacity, you are super motivated to see changes. As an outsider, you can see what is what is, is done wrong and you know you can change it. So like, why not just, you know, roll up your sleeves and do it, right? People, when they, when they have to pitch their uh, first 100 days or the first month, you go all in, but you're saying it's not necessarily the best way to go. Maybe there's more a, a more indirect way of doing that. Maybe by pacing yourself a little bit, you are more likely to get the outcome you would have wanted. 
what does it mean building relationship when we're when we're talking about course cultural differences how would you go about that what advice would you give folks who are new to the workforce or new to a company and they have to kind of establish themselves within the business before they start suggesting changes yeah it's a it's a great question I think that the first thing I mean there's obviously the element of this like extracurricular stuff like go go with people for drinks and just try to build a, a trust and bond but I'd say from a professional perspective I think it's very I guess the key learning and the key advice that I would give people is try to understand what they need from you try to be a, of a help to them right because at the end of the day you're here to make things better but you need their support so whether you're in a, a sales ops function a finance function any other support function that supports the the go-to-market the sales organization you want to help them improve right and you want and and for that you need to hear from them you need to hear from them so the first line in a person's mission statement would not be you know do this do that change this change that is to figure out how can they help their their higher-ups yeah 100 i've never seen that in a job description you know I've never seen a job description that says your number one priority is to help your managers do their job right. But in so many conversations we had, this is exactly it. First of all, see how you can be a contributor to the larger organization. Only then find ways to individually express your, your professionalism. You said that startups sometimes camouflage their like, poor execution or poor planning. with the reframing of oh it's a learning experience yeah what did you mean I feel very strongly about it as you could see um, I think that a lot in many many changes that are happening in startups whether it's shift for the, of the business you're just executing a new process and you forecast in process you're launching a new team launching a new product moving uh, changing of pricing startups tends to Uh, especially people growing startups don't t- tend to see the bigger picture so they wouldn't do a full mapping of all the implications and what happens is very common and very commonly you're driving some sort of a change or a process and you're not thinking of all the implications you do that the next day something breaks and if it's something breaks technically fine you fix it if it's a bug or things like that but if something change breaks from a process perspective that you haven't or from people people are living you That obviously has a larger implication. I think that to me that's it's it's not rocket science is in like take a few more days to think about it, bring in more people to consult with have like more opinions being also that you're mapping more uh more implications that might uh might happen, and then you're just more prepared so you're saying the move fast and break things approach to work had failed you. I would say it failed me, but I think that it has its place, but not always. It has its place, but not always. I think that when, when you're doing like really tiny changes, when I need to post a new blog post or run a new marketing campaign, yeah, well, let's just do it and see how it works because we can debate about it for two months, but it, it wouldn't move the needle. But when I'm doing like a huge change in the company that potentially will break a lot of things, you probably want to take a couple of more changes. Uh, More days to think about it I think it's more it's less about the time it's more about involving a larger audience to allow more opinions not so much you don't have to you can ignore those opinions afterwards but it's just to to ensure that there is enough people to reflect what your the, the, the implication of that decision I think that's such a such a simple thing to do but it It does take time it does at least appear to slow you down and sometimes when you're operating with a lot of autonomy and you don't have to do that as in you can just deploy here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states and United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's easy to not do. Yeah. VP of the sales solution. How many people do you, uh, do you uh, uh, manage? Uh, about six, seven of them at the moment. Six, seven of them. And what functions? So my core team is uh, product, product marketing, strategy, and marketing. So these are all roles whose output affects the entire company. It's not individual contributor whose sales quota could be 95% on target or 120. Correct. Yeah. So these are working on products that are deployed internationally. Correct. How many customers roughly is their work influenced by? Hundreds. Hundreds. Yeah. And if you attach it to a revenue number, so the work your team does, how much in, in, in potential income is out there for them? We're about uh, 15% of the company's revenue, and we're talking about millions. Okay. So this, uh, this team of uh, seven people or so is in charge of million dollars in revenue through the work they're doing on, on projects that affect the company all over the world. Were you ever surprised by work that was done under you in your name? And you were like, ooh, I did not see that coming? Yeah, I'd say I, I'd say I want to consider myself as like because I'm very aware of these things. I want to say that uh, normally I don't. I try to involve as many people as possible, but for sure, I mean, I think that um, I'll give you an example. Three months ago, we've done a, a pricing change for our product line, which I consider as you know it's an organic responsibility of my team. I. Uh, I have some uh, a few dotted line salespeople and account managers that is reporting to kind of my business unit, and so we'll just enable them. We'll do this uh, price change easy, uh, and it got ma- massive pushback from from the C level, right? Massive pushback uh, to the level that we've been debating it for like six months now. I think that was probably the most recent one. Um, and hindsight, for sure, I would have consulted with a lot more people. Even though I consider myself as someone that is aware of that, um, that's a classic example. Just another one or two hours conversation with four people would have prevented this. The worst meeting I've ever had was just that, you know? The worst meeting. I work on a project. I want to do, I want to pull something from my back pocket the very last minute to save the day. I've done all the groundwork I could and I invite all the senior stakeholders into the room and I want to wow them. And one thing I learned is that senior stakeholders don't like to be surprised or wowed. They like to know what are they walking into. So that's another point about what helps the people above us in the organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. The silly values and generally speaking of senior people like like, um, transparency, like predictability, 100%. It's key because in startups world, you find yourself doing an individual contributor and then climb to a VP position, sometimes very quickly, within the space of weeks, even in the same company. Yeah. Um, one of the upsides of, uh, of fast-moving companies is plenty of opportunities. The downside is zero preparation. Bam, you're landing in the VP seat, and now you have to figure out not how to work with your peers who are the same level as you, but how to work with people who are five to 10 years older and more experienced and have you know, pressures that you're not even aware of. So in that regard, I want to ask you about your role in your direct life. How much attention do you give to coaching, considering that the tenure of startup employees is getting shorter and shorter? 
I'm a big fan of coaching and generally speaking, I think in, in, in my role specifically and in my team, what uh, keeps them in the company is feeling a feeling of something big. Coaching is hard to do, right? In, in my experience, coaching requires patience and it requires deliverance, especially when you know what needs to be done. Yeah. You know, you sit with one of your, uh, you sit with an employee and you know what needs to be done. There's no doubt about it. You've been there before, but you can't just tell them what to do anymore. It's not that type of a workplace. They need to get to that conclusion themselves, right? How do you do with that as a manager when you have all these pressing priorities and when you already know the answer, how do you resist giving it straight away and how do you lead people into that answer? I almost want to... Uh... Uh, bounce back the uh, the question to you and see uh, how you do with that. Uh, if you have any advice. <laughs> I have an advice. I have one advice that I took from Bob Dylan. Okay. Surprisingly. His thing was put a question mark instead of an exclamation point in each one of your sentence. First and foremost, just start with question marks and see, and see what happens. The second thing is, and that's uh, autonomy and ownership. I know my first manager, um, I was an intern in an advertising agency. I had zero, zero experience. And my manager was not afraid of putting me in front of the customers on day one. She knew that by putting me in that spot, I'll have to step up. And yeah. I think coaching is about, is about you iterate a vision, you carve out a territory for that person to own, and then you help them reach their conclusion on their own with questions. So... If you'd ask me, if I'd be, what does a one-to-one look like with you? What's a, what are the things that you usually discuss? So a lot of my one-to-ones are very, let's say, bullet points driven, right? When I come to the meeting, uh, we each contribute a few topics that we want to talk about ahead of the meeting, and then we just discuss this. And generally speaking, I try myself to allow some time not just discussing those um, bullet points, because otherwise you never grow, you never coach, you never develop both on my side and, and my employees. Um, but I'd say that um, when we talk about like, so a big part of that would be just tactical things. We need to solve task A, B, C, and we just, um, uh, I see where I can help them with that. A lot of uh, the, the, the part on, on the coaching is probably more related. I try to get my team to understand different opinions in the company, right? So I, I invest a lot of time in stakeholders, uh, management i think it's critical for the success of our team and so i try to almost simulate what would that person that you're going to speak to gonna think and i'll, I'll try to have a conversation and saying and, and direct them like would they get upset would they be happy about it how are you going to approach that right? this is huge i think this is one of the biggest gifts as a manager you can give your employees and giving them the perspective from the rooms that you are in and they're not it makes it increases the sense of belonging and connects them to the bigger picture. That's huge. I'm I'm really happy to hear that you do that. Yeah, yeah, and I think I, I think that especially for the, the my role and, and my team's roles, um, they definitely need it. I'd say that um, from a coaching perspective, um, I like the Bob Dylan example of the question mark. So I'll use it more. Uh, um, other than just like, does that make sense? Which is like the classic question. Uh, <laughs> this is just like, yeah, agree with me quickly and let's move on. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's a good, uh, good advice. Um, I'd say that I focus a lot on um, growth of careers, right? So I try to not. It's probably it's not something you could do every weekly one to one, but uh, I have with um, most of my uh, direct reports a monthly meeting that is um, focused on like more how do we grow your your profession, your career. How do you have that conversation without leading someone out of the company? First, uh, I'm a big believer in people and I think that the more I build trust with them and give them that advice, the more they want to learn from you as well. So there is like uh, some sort of like, I guess there's some sort of, there are two impacts here. One is like, oh, I want to grow my career in that direction. But the other, the other impact is like, I'm really enjoying that conversation. I want to learn more which is a feedback that I've received in the past. And uh, I'd say that it's more the, the way the, to mitigate that is really to focus on 
they grow of the skills rather than they grow of like a specific title or a specific salary. It's not really about that. It's really, what do you want to do, right? Like a common question that I ask my employees is 10 years time, tell me which C-level you want to be in. Do you want to be the CPO, the chief product officer? Do you want to be the chief revenue officer? Do you want to be chief strategy officer? What, what do you want to do? How do they respond to that? Because when I was asked about my five years fuzzy vision, like I couldn't iterate an answer. Yeah. So I, I'm not a big fan of also like five years vision, but to me, like that C-level is more about like in which function do you want to grow, right? So it's less about like, do you want to be a C-level? It's more about, do you want to be mastering in product? Do you want to be mastering in sales? Do you want to do something? Do you want to be project management and strategy? There's a byproduct to that question. And that I think is beautiful to see is you demonstrate belief in their ability. And they react well to that. I mean, I think that they, it, it, you could see that it makes them think, right? Especially in those type of line of businesses, units where it's a bit like you're operating as a generalist, right? You're doing a bit of marketing, a bit of product, a bit of sales, like I'm getting on customer calls, a bit of services. And it's one of those places where you could go either way. So you could see that they start thinking about it and the more they think about it and reflect, the better you understand them. How are you measured in your role? What makes you successful in your role? First, I have a, a bonus plan and I have very clear measurements that are probably a bit boring, things like revenue, retention rates, and things like that. So obviously, there is a, just a standard KPIs. Um, from how do I measure myself or on the day-to-day, how I'm being, I guess, viewed and measured by my, uh, my direct manager, it's really how we drive the business as a whole forward. And a big part of that is people. So making sure, uh, because we're quite a, a small team, making sure that retention of employees is very important for us um, because that's what the way we grow forward. And the overall um, identity of the business unit is, a, there is like a brand almost like of a business unit that we're trying to build. And I think that's something that is quite hard to measure, but it's probably something that I'm being measured on from a perception perspective. So hard metrics, revenue, uh, customer retention, and so on. And then softer metrics, which is employee retention, which is a hard metric only harder to influence. We'll touch about that. And then the identity of the team you're working on. So is that like your personal brand, the team's personal brand? I think it's the team's personal brand, right? You want to be, I think that's more like, it's a soft measurement, but you want to be, known as like a very professional best-in-class team within the organization you want to be known as a business unit outside also as some as a, as a business unit or as a line of business that is innovative that is delivering value to customers of course on a scale of one to ten how much pressure is on you at work i want to say eight um, eight because I, I would I'm the kind of guy that would never say say ten because there's always more pressure that can be put on you. Um, I think that I'm benefiting from the fact that I'm in London, and most of the company is in Israel. And for I guess for for context, three hundred employees of the five hundred are in Israel. The CEO, most of the C level are in Israel, and so most of the pressure is there. So I uh, I'm relatively okay. Um, so I say eight is a good number. How long has it been eight? It probably moves in between six to 10 on an average, right? Like there are days that it's just like over the roof, a lot of changes, a lot of pressure. So it's just no single point that it's just eight for more than one day, probably. Uh, that's just, I guess, the bipolar uh, impact of a startup. And what would you say the stress levels of your employees? I'm trying to, I'm hoping that it's a six, six-ish. There is a lot of, uh, and I see, I, I do just consider this part of my role to create a bubble for them, right? To block a lot of stress. There is a lot of stress coming from management, from external stuff that are happening in the market. I'm trying to to give them a relatively warm place to just operate with no uh, no stress. But there are sometimes like, things, you know, things are happening. I'm asking because in a startup with all the uncertainties and pressures, 
one of the manager's roles is is that to create that bubble, to create that safe environment. And when we're talking about startup nightmares, it's a lot of times what do you how do you operate when you don't have that? So you average level of stress is eight, pretty high. You try and keeping it to a six for your employees. How do you do that? First, I try to speak to them a lot. So I try not to spend all of my time managing upwards and sidewards. I'm a big believer in like, you need to spend about 50% in my level managing downwards, right? You cannot be like, just have one-to-one and that's it. So I try to speak to them a lot. I try to um, not change their priorities every day. I think that a big part of the stress level of an individual contributor is having a change of, of just like having uncertainty. And so I try to, um, even if I get a change of direction from my direct manager or I see different things, I try to involve that change of direction smoothly in their day-to-day. So it's not, remember the thing that we talked about on Monday, let's do that just so that you know, next Monday there is some sort of another new thing that came in that we need to tackle, but I really want us to finish first that um, thing we talked about rather than there was a, we need to deliver this by tomorrow, which isn't productive for them and add add more stress. So mitigating changes to them, buying them time. Yeah. Um, also giving them the sense of completion. Uh, if your projects are, are, are terminated halfway through, hinders your confidence and hinders the motivation. So having been able to complete the project, even if it's not implemented, even if it's not used, I think it's big. You know, you never know when you're going to go back to that uh, yeah. to that specific uh, initiative. So I think that's a great way of, of reducing stress in that regard. I like how you reflect my uh, answers, by the way. It's it's helpful for me to structure my thoughts as well. Because <laughs> it's, um, it's a very nuanced role. You know, you have a lot of people reporting it to you in dotted lines. Um, some of the pressure on you is because you're measured on things you don't necessarily influence, I'm guessing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. 100%. And it makes life so hard and so complicated. If you're in charge of revenue, but you don't actually pick up the phone and call uh, your prospective customers, your your leverage in influencing is, you know, diminishing. It's small, and that happens more and more as you evolve into senior leadership roles. Yeah, yeah exactly. You need to learn how to manage metrics and uh, influence people without uh, them reporting to you. And because there's so many variables that you are measured on, how do you manage expectations with your higher-ups? The classic sales situation is you want to under-promise and over-deliver. Right. As an individual contributor, this is your job. Manage expectations. Say I'm going to bring a, a X and then get X plus 20%. As a manager, when you put yourself in that position of under-promising, it puts you in a direct clash with the the other senior stakeholders. What do you mean? Why are you saying we can only get X? Don't you believe in the product? Don't you believe in the vision? That is very tricky territory for any VP in a commercially minded organization to navigate through. You're spot on. It's a it's a difficult situation to be in. Uh, you wanna be, I think our, like as a human nature is to want to deliver, right? And we wanna de- deliver. And so we want to commit to a number that is realistic or a growth path that is realistic. First, there is an element of like aligning with your own direct manager. And I think that me and my nature, I'm, I'm realistic, right? So I will always go for the realistic scenario, not the stretch scenario. And I work well with um, direct managers that stretch me, right? That know that they need to stretch me. And so I say, I hear what you're saying, but you need to take another 10% or you need to find a way to, to grow inorganically somehow. And so I think that that actually helps me stretch myself. Um, the way I th- then cascade it to the team, though, is that in my and in my view, I'm doing this negotiation or this kind of forecasting with my direct manager and then with the other C-levels, and eventually we're signing off a number. Once we sign off a number, I'm going to be the biggest believer in it, right? I'm not going to go back to the team and say, oh, we have a really stretch, we'll never make it. That's just not like... Yeah, I think that for any manager, you really have to believe in it, right? If you're not believing in it, then your team won't believe in it. So to me, I'm trying to separate between those two processes. Do that kind of stretching process with your 
um, direct manager and the other C-levels. And then um, once number a uh, number is docked, it's really just focus on delivering it. Like be the, the, be the biggest believer in that number. Otherwise, it's going to be difficult. So there's a time for negotiations and for rationalizing why a certain number should be. And, but once it has been decided, regardless if you agree with it or not, you have to start believing in it. And the sooner you change your focus from, the sooner you, you embrace that number, the better. Yeah. Um, I've been in situations where I had to downplay what I thought was achievable and I was called out for it. Like, if this is what you're saying, maybe we need someone in that role that believes that the number could be twice as big. And that's a very challenging situation to be in for a manager. It is. I agree. How did you solve it, by the way? I didn't. Um, in all honesty, I didn't. I stayed true to what I thought is possible. But uh, it diminished the trust my leadership had in me. At the end of that scenario, we were only 30% of the target anyway. Okay, so that was a yeah. classic startup mistake of just, you know, shooting for the moon, hoping to hit the stars, but not actually leaving the atmosphere. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough situation. I, uh, I remember myself thinking in, uh, in many cases in the situation, you start questioning yourself, am I just wrong? Am I just, you know, literally just being too conservative? And that's actually uh, possible. So it's always, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky to get the, the number right. And I think that I like being stretched. And I, I like an external opinion. And I, actually in, in a forum when I need to present to the management with six other people saying this is just too low, that pushes me to go back and think of new ways to bring revenue, new ways to grow. So I, I in, the, in the meeting, I will probably wouldn't be as happy. But when I'm thinking of it in my kind of own space afterwards, that actually drives me forward. So sometimes you're bound to get it wrong, give an overestimate or widely underestimate something. How do you recover and optimize and save face with other stakeholders when these things happen? I'll divide it into my answer into two. First, when you're underestimating performance and then you end up doing well, that's easier, I guess, to position it in the right way. When you're um, underachieving, which is, I guess, the, the tougher situation to be in, one way is to rationalize, just like do a post-mortem and understand why you didn't achieve the targets, whether it's a number or it's a personal goal or a project goal, is understanding exactly what what happened. I think that the analysis is one thing, what really helps other stakeholders and management feeling a bit more confident about it is that you're opening to change your behavior, right? So you, you're saying I've done this and this and this wrong or my team hasn't performed these elements. That's great. It's about showing what actions we're taking to improve things. So it gives you the reassurance that things are not going to be as um, as bad next time. How do you take on criticism without being hurt by it, without losing confidence? It's not the easiest thing. Uh, no, for, especially from, I, uh, I'll admit that for me, it's not easy at all. As in uh, my initial reaction uh, when I get criticism is to push back. And I would say, no, no, you're wrong. So that my initial reaction is actually to take it quite hard. Um, for me, knowing, being aware of that, it's already an advantage. And so for me, what normally I would do in the, those situations is that I'll ask for time to process that. And when I think and digest afterwards by myself on a specific criticism, I'm normally able to see first the right things that uh, or the things that are correct and I, sh I actually should improve. And also I'm able to separate that from things that maybe I, I'm not necessarily agreeing on or that I have a different opinion. And then I would actually engage in that conversation again with my direct manager or, or whoever it is um, that uh, voiced that criticism. But I, me personally, I need that uh, processing time. So as a manager, you've set the goals for your team, you've negotiated them, and for whatever reason, you didn't meet them. How do you build your team's confidence back up, let alone yourself? What are the processes that you're putting in place in order to get better? First, I need to do it better. Uh, it's one of my, I wouldn't say weaknesses sounds always like negative, but some, one of the things that I need to get better at encouraging my team and driving them forward. 
um, because my tendency is to be critical, critical about myself, critical about my team. And so I tend to pass it on when we're not delivering, to say, look, guys, we've done a bad job in that project, or we haven't done it as well. This is what happened. This is what we need to improve. Um, and so I tend to be very rationalized about it. Uh, rational about it and I think that I need to be a bit more empathetic and more motivational so it's a learning point for me that I need to work on um, I'd say the on the flip of that I said that being rational about it means that it's normally being delivered in a constructive way that we know what we need to solve so that like knowing that there are some specific actions that we need to do in order to solve something also removes the, again the uncertainty and that feeling of like I don't control my own destiny before we wrap up any uh, anything you'd like to promote and when can we learn more about you and the work that similar web is doing we have uh, a LinkedIn page for similar web and, uh, and we're posting there every month uh, a list of upcoming e-commerce websites it's quite interesting so check that out with that guy I want to thank you so much for coming to the show and speaking openly about uh, your day-to-day uh, life and experiences it's been a pleasure you deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.